If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how are you it is podcast time and we're going to get straight into it because it is the eve of the leaving search results the great Irish jamboree the great Irish jamboree where you think at the time it's the most important thing in the world. And then about three years later, if anybody asked you, what did you get in your leaving cert? You'd say, time to leave that conversation. There's a total Egypt. <laughs> John, how are you, Ed? Oh, great. And actually, what it does, though, is it's, it's uh, the night of the greatest piss-up of your life. It is. <laughs> that usually turns sour at some stage. Well, I, I do remember getting the, the leaving cert results when I was in London, because I went to London straight after leaving for the summer. And lived like some sort of derelict <laughs> delinquent. You lived, you lived in a kind of a squat or something, didn't you? Yeah, with with loads of people. It was great fun. It was great fun. Living on nothing. Fresh air yeah. and drink. And a couple of days work on a building site yeah, for a week. Exactly. Fantastic stuff. But anyway, so this year we have a leaving search. So, so it's exciting all... times. And I I I you know, I was talking to her about her. She's just cool as a breeze, taking right. in her stride, and which is absolutely the way to do it. It's a, it is the, it is the, I'm going to tell you a funny story because I was in London the year before when the Leaving Cert results came out, right? Mm. And my mother always wanted me to be a national school teacher. Do you know this, right? Like her. Yes. Well, the and whole I, family are teachers. I know. And I just thought there is no way in the world. But my mother had arranged for me to go to an interview in Kerry's Fort National Teaching Training College. And right. I came back from London living in a totally different world. And I remember going into Carysworth and saying, there's no way in the world I want this. But I had to go in to make the ma, you know, yeah. at least yeah, to yeah, Jennifer, yeah, yeah. I think. And I remember going in and I'd come from living in a pretty nice apartment with loads of trendy, sophisticated French Canadians, right? They were talking about art and philosophy and history and going out and having a laugh and living in London, right? I come back on the mailboat to do the interview for... Yeah the training colleges I never wanted to go to. And I walked up Carey's Fort, right? And the first thing I saw was a woman with a squeeze box, right? 
and accord you. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, sweet Jesus, this is not where I want to be. And if a I melogen. get this, a melogen, it was a bleeding melogen, right? And you had to sing fucking songs, Osqualiga, and it was almost crazy stuff. And, yeah. and of course, I've, I've no interest in, in melogens. Melogens. So I remember went in and they started to laugh Gaelic and I just almost said, Nihigam. I kind of stumbled and stuttered all the way through, even though I could understand and speak pretty well, because yeah. I just knew I had to fail this exam. Because Your mother must have been devastated. I, I had an image of myself in grey Farah slacks, right? <laughs> in some primary school somewhere down yeah. the country. And I just, I remember going back to, I remember failing, explicitly failing the thing. Okay, never telling the ma this, right? She probably yeah. still doesn't know this. This might be the first time she's ever heard of it. And yeah. getting back on the mail boat about two days later, Hollyhead, crew, back to London, back to the sanctity of my Quebecois sophisticates and thinking, never again, never again. <laughs> it was the sight of nuns, melogens, and then Colin Jass, Crucian Amo, or some brutal stuff like that. You know, at least you were living with a bunch of lads in London, right? Yeah. I was back on my Sweeney Todd trying to construct stupidity. So that I didn't have to become a national teacher because I knew that I wanted to go to Trinity and I knew I had the points in the bag. But it was only really second time around. I was one of those guys who could add the points together. Oh, <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. like, that was, was such a scam. A, it was a great scam. You did really badly first time around and then you added points together and you put the two of them together and away you go. <laughs> if you remember, Marker, I was never into the Leaving Cert or school for that matter, but I was always into the music. So, my focus was always on kind of following the passion, which I did, of course, which had mixed results. But having said that, here we are. <laughs> here we are. We're still here. We're still here. But I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating thing, you know, that I mean, it's always this 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 idea is, do you do what your parents say you ought to do? Yeah. Or do you actually do what you want to do? Well, back uh, in those days, it was it was all about the pensionable job. Get a job oh, at the bank or the civil service or whatever. I know, I know, I know. But that was half my that was half my mother and father's thinking was get a job as a teacher, and you'll never go hungry. You know yeah. what I mean? You'll actually, yeah, yeah. and then you know when you're sixty five, you get a few you get a few quid every month. My poor mother. I mean, I remember walking out of the leaving the bank, the central bank job. She couldn't believe it. She's like, <laughs> traumatized. Oh my God, big job in the bank. Big job in the bank, and then he goes off to London to. Like my, my, my aunt Joan said to me once when I was training as a as a sound engineer, she said, J- J- John, why don't you get yourself a proper job? Oh, wh- what do you what do <laughs> what, you mean? What does that mean? Like, she said, like a friend of mine. Now, her husband got a job in the guards, in the police. And when he died, didn't they look after her very well? Oh, I <laughs> this know, was the whole thing. I know. What I know. about me? What about me? Yeah. No, but the whole the whole world has completely and utterly changed. And you know, the interesting thing about the education system, which we'll talk about in a second, John, is the question is, is it now doing the job of preparing young adults for the world that they're about to go into? Because the world they're about to go into is changing dramatically. So for example, John, the top ten most sought after jobs as listed by the OECD in a survey mm. not so long ago, didn't even exist 20 years ago. Data programmers, data analysts, yeah, all yeah, those things, yeah. they didn't exist. And they're the jobs not, that yeah. pay well now, you know. So, I mean, the idea that the world is just constantly changing, changing, and the education system has to change with it, or at least acknowledge that, is what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So Mark, did you end up in your ideal job, do you think? I haven't had a proper job for years. <laughs> I've, had a, I've had a portfolio career, as they say. Oh, oh right, uh, yeah. I know it's a really, it's a really <laughs> grandiose title for never really being able to hold down a proper job for long, you know. When I actually think of it now, it, it has been a fantastic, fantastic experience of never really having a boss. So I have a pathological fear of a boss, right? And if you have a yeah. fear of a boss, you therefore have a fear of a wage because with a wage comes a boss. And I've worked, as you know, like for the last about 22 years in this slightly nomadic existence kind of precarious gig by gig it's sort of a skin in the game you do yeah. you go from gig and some things work some things don't work you when they don't work you sort of get back up and you start again and when they do work you realize that actual fact if something is working it's not that you have any right for it to work or it's not that you have for example anything other than what i would call a temporary monopoly right so when something yeah. you're doing is working it's not that you've got any comparative advantage that entitles you to this gig for into perpetuity what you have is you've got a temporary monopoly where at that moment things are working, but yep. there's always yep. somebody yep. looking at it and somebody coming up and somebody figuring out, you know, is there a better way of doing it? It's, it's, a, it's the Shunterian world, this, this, this relentless scale of uh, creative destruction. So I always think that when you fail in something, the key thing is to get back up, right? And don't yep. take it too seriously. But when you're doing well and a gig is going well, to also understand that there's nothing permanent about it. It's only a temporary hiatus. And yeah. somewhere, someone is looking at that gig and saying, I can do that better. I can figure this thing out. And that means you're kind of on your toes all the time. You're a little bit anxious, a little bit insecure. You and I know what it's like. It's the freelancers. Sure. Actually, do you know where the word freelancer comes from? From Florence. 
It wasn't in Florence. No, it was before Florence. It was, in actual fact, the Florentines hired freelancers. So the greatest lad to have in a battle was a lancer, a fellow good with a lance, because it was an right. amazing. Okay, that's right? brilliant. And a freelancer was a fella who was actually his lance was free and he was a gun for hire, and that's where a freelancer yeah, yeah, comes yeah. from. Okay, so Mercenary. you and I are free. Yeah, yeah, with <laughs> with, with you know with a lance that we, we was free to hire, and the freelancers were they were an entirely significant strata of artisan life uh, yeah. in, in the medieval age. But I mean, what happens with people like you, of course, John, you and I, is that the distinction, and this is the interesting thing about the pandemic, the distinction between our work life and our life life is very blurred, right? For sure, absolutely. It's very difficult to know where does life begin, where does work end, because work ends up being part of your personality, being part of what you do. And what I've noticed in the pandemic, John, is that lots and lots of friends of ours who have had so-called proper jobs have been much more dislocated by working from home. Like I've been working from home for 20 years. Mm, by, yeah. by working from home, by having to be self-starters, by having to come up with different ideas, by not having the security of the office. Mm. And I think that those people, which is still the majority, have found it quite dislocating the whole non-office world or non-factory world, although most factories have kept, kept working. Whereas people like you and I, it's like... The, Pandemic was just another thing. It's yeah. like, oh, okay, yeah. that's another yeah, thing. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it didn't affect us in, in the same way. But also when you're talking about the gig economy and the freelancer, you know, I like it as a way to work, but it doesn't suit everybody. No, you have to have a certain disposition and that disposition must be unanchored from security. That's the key. Yeah. that Life is all about, for many people, a trade-off between freedom and security, freedom and security, and the key thing is to try and get as free as possible and as secure as possible. Now, the gig economy doesn't work for most people because the gig economy can be shorthand for the precarious economy, where you don't know what the hell's yeah. happening the next day, right? Yeah. And in places like the UK, you have those extreme, extremely vicious working regulations where people don't have proper contracts, they don't know what they're working, they get the call that night to say you're working the next day. There's it's been a zero just the UK, hour you know. Well, those zero hours is illegal in Ireland, but it's it's definitely the UK is really, and in the United States, of course, is the is the worst for it. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I mean, I like to call it living a sovereign life, right? I'm obsessed, as you know. No, really, I am obsessed. That's <laughs> no, nice. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm obsessed with having sovereignty over your own life. Yeah. So that on a Monday morning, there's not some person on the phone telling you what to do. So where are you? I mean, the, the in our in our world, the person on the phone is us. Yes. The person that yeah, we're yeah. actually worried about and anxious about. So I, oh, I, no, here's I think that, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's like my alter ego saying, you know, write that book, do that podcast, go and do that speech, whatever. You know, rather than what I would be much happier doing is mooching around, having a coffee and chatting to people. Of course you would. Whatever. The, the great phrase is the flaneur. You know, the flaneur, the guy who walks around town. Like our friend Bloom was a great flaneur. Right? Right. You walk around town observing the world, being a sort of an objective chronicler of, of life. I would much yeah. prefer that, but you can't, you, that doesn't pay the bills. But what's interesting now, John, is our lifestyle or what we have ended up doing because we couldn't hold down a proper job is going to become that slightly nomadic, slightly insecure, seat of the pants, working your own trade, perfecting your trade and actually going out and selling yourself in the market on a, on a weekly or monthly basis. I think that's going to become much more normal in the next 20 years. And that's something that's different because for the last hundred years, that's been abnormal, right? 
Mm. But if you look prior to this, where the world, you know, lots and lots, go back to the medieval world, the artisan class, the tradesman class, they lived exactly like we did, or we do. So it was normal for a long time. But then, of course, in the 20th century, it became abnormal. And now I think it might become normal again. And therefore, we should look at the education system through the prism of the fact that many, many, many students will leave school and university and will never have a real job. The problem with the gig economy is that surely it will, like, obviously it doesn't suit everybody. And on the first part, in the early part of your career, you kind of need to learn your trade, as it were. You're absolutely right. An actual fact, I learned my trade in the central bank and then then those big investment banks I worked for. So then I actually learned what economics was about. And I learned monetary economics and I learned financial markets. And it was only at the age of about 29, 30 that I thought, okay, I can leave this carry on now. Yeah. I don't have to work this. So you're absolutely right. There needs to be an apprenticeship period whereby people learn something. Yeah. Otherwise, the, the kind of gig economy would lead to greater inequality rather than equality in terms of wealth and, and social structure as well. Yeah, I think, it could, I think it can do, but I think it's only at its infancy now. Right. Yeah. And I think we're, yeah. we're actually going from one revolution to another. But it's like I always say to people who talk to me about journalism, it's my belief that maybe some journals listening don't think this, that it's very important in journalism to know something like know economics or know what the politics or whatever your whatever your speciality is, not to be a jack of all trades, but actually know something so you yeah. can get paid by having an opinion on something or an angle on something, or an analytical ability, because then you're actually selling something in the market. Whereas if you're selling just your ability to write, your ability to be an opinion writer, your ability to live off your wits, then you're in a very crowded stream, and you have to be an extremely good writer to make mm. uh, to make an impression. But if you want to look at what's happening, John, we're in what is now called the fourth industrial revolution, right? And this right. is a massive, massive change. You might have remembered Paul Donovan of UBS, the chief economist of UBS, was talking about how it's changing the economy, the fourth industrial revolution. But so the first industrial revolution was the end of the 18th century. And that was the move from muscle power, from animal muscle power, whether it's human or animal, to steam power and coal power. And Mm. that profoundly changed the energy dynamic because all production is energy. This is the interesting thing. And then in the industrial revolution, becomes carbon. You're basically fossil fuels, right? Yeah. And steam. So that's the first industrial revolution. And that, of course, has profound impacts. That's when they talk about the the satanic mills. That's when that Elgar talks about the satanic mills in in, in the UK. So you have massive industrial production. You've got urbanization. You have the industrial revolution, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the second industrial revolution is the revolution that happened largely in the States of railways, electricity, of a massive network linking agriculture to the industrial heartlands, to the urban areas. And that was in the tail end of the 19th century. So the 18th century, the 19th century. Then the third industrial revolution was the sort of revolution where the first computerization comes in, the service industry, office work, the commute, all that stuff, suburbs. And that's all in the second half of the 20th century. 
And now in the first half of the 21st century, we have this fourth industrial revolution, and that is the connected revolution, the mobile revolution, the online revolution, and AI and all these things. And what that is doing in the same way as those three other revolutions change the way we live, change the, where we live, how we live, how we got paid, this is going to have the same impact. And sure. it's going to be a much more mobile, footloose, much less structured way giving huge autonomy to individuals. But as you said, it's the opportunities if you adapt to this way of life are extraordinary. But if you don't adapt, if you're still craving security and the nine to five and the permanent pensionable and the set wage, I think the costs for those people in the next 20 years is going to be absolutely enormous. And that's to your point of the gig economy having a massive downside. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. I was chatting to Izzy the other day. She's getting her leaving cert results tomorrow. I know her well. Yeah, and all she, she's just really looking forward to getting into college and experiencing college life and stuff. But she made an interesting point as well about how she sees her generation as being very different to previous generations. Like, she reckons that her generation is going to be a lot more innovative and agile and, and entrepreneurial. And she reckons like old fogies like us and the way we do business is dead and gone, which I, I thought was really positive. And I loved her attitude. Like it gave me great hope for the future. In fairness, it is like, fantastic. we don't have a great track record in areas such as the environment. Yeah. So I, I, I challenged her a little bit, as, as dads do, and said, well, like you can't all be CEOs. You know, there does have to be some sort of division of labor and some sort of work hierarchy. And she said, well, you know, dad, if the millennials like the kind of nine to five and security of work so much, we just get them to do all the grunt work. <laughs> so I think we're in good hands. But the thing is, you've got to end up being the CEO of yourself. Like people are going to turn into brands and everything right. you do yeah, yeah. is going to be part of that brand. And it's just, I just think it's the way I see the world atrophying because the world of large companies, really large companies with huge amounts of workers and those huge amounts of workers being on long-term secure contracts. I can't see that working in a period of kind of hyper-globalization where companies are coming and going all the time. And where, like, if you look, John, 20 years ago, again, if you look at the top 10 companies in the United States on the stock market, so on the, the Dow Jones yeah. 100, right? None of them are there anymore. Not one. Yes, yeah, yeah. So so the whole world is revolving. And, and, and that means that at some stage, the Apples and Googles, they won't be there either. Something else will come up and take their so, place. So taking all that then, how do you think then that education should should change and be more appropriate for yeah. the, the brave new world, as it were? Well, this is the thing, right? So you, you kind of ask yourself, well, what is the education system for? What should it be doing, right? Mm. And it's to give people the skills to be responsible citizens. I think this is what it's all about, Right to be adult citizens and to be able to participate in societies. You know, school does not prepare you for almost anything you're going to experience after school. But what it does yeah, is it pretty gives you... Much, a, yeah. You know, and if you think about our schooling system came very much from the British schooling system, and that was all driven at trying to create a civil servant class in the late 19th century. So they learn Latin, they learn mathematics, they learn... 
the classics, all these things to give us sort of a very narrow, they call it a broad education, but in actual fact it was a very narrow education. Mm. And we've largely inherited that and moved along. And then we've kind of offloaded responsibility for other bits of education onto colleges and technical colleges and all that sort of stuff, right? But if you actually think about where education can make a difference, I've always been amazed when I sat in class in school, right, at the extraordinary different abilities of the people in my class in school, right? And everybody brought something to the table, first of all. And secondly, Everybody heard something different when the teacher spoke. This is what really intrigued me when I was, you know, 15 or 16. I was looking around class and school because Mm. certain people got it. Certain people didn't get it. Certain people were narrow and academic and they could do that stuff. Certain people were much more broad and it didn't really land. But collectively, the amount of intelligence in the class was phenomenal. In any class was phenomenal. But that intelligence wasn't always narrow grade academic intelligence. It was all sorts of other intelligences. So you think of what's the aim of the education system is to try and prepare people for the world they're about to go into. And if you are trying to prepare people to become civil servants, then our education system is probably quite good, right? As it was originally aimed to do so. But now, if you mean, look at kids, for example, you know, kids are online from the age of five. They're exposed to all sorts of stuff by the age of eight. They're sexualized. They're not just sexualized, John, but they're getting information from all sorts of areas. And of course, they don't know what's right or wrong. They don't know who to trust. They don't know what's true, what's well, not it, true. They don't know what's fake news, what is news. It, it, like it caused significant problems, that in itself, the yeah. kind of early sexualization of childhood. And in actual fact, I, I don't know if you remember, but myself and Sheena produced a radio documentary a little while ago on the sexualization of childhood. I do remember that. I'm- yeah, and it was really interesting because we, we got to speak to a lot of psychologists and teachers and kids themselves and, and people who work in that area. And the general conclusion was that kids need to be left to be kids, you know, to grow up in their own time at their yeah. own pace you know, everyone's different, of course, but, you know, and that's why we have markers and milestones for child development. So when kids are exposed to inappropriate ideas or concepts or or things like images on social media, etc., the brain isn't developed enough to, to simply process it. And this has been shown in loads of studies around the world leading to all sorts of difficulties and mental health issues amongst teenagers and distorted value systems, and not just teenagers, but on into adult life. Yeah. So I, I always use the, the the analogy of like the forest and the, and the trees, where like in a planted forest, where trees are planted very close together, they grow up very quick, very straight and very tall. But a, a tree left out in a in an open field grows much slower but much more broad and round in shape. And I, I think like it's a good this image. I like this image, Mr. Davis. <laughs> but it, but, like but it, it, it kind of it reflects how we teach our kids and how people develop. Are they forced to develop quickly and therefore are very narrow? Or are they allowed to develop at their well, own rate and their own uh, pace? But you see, the thing is, if you think of the online world, right, and you think that kids have smartphones earlier and all that sort of stuff, then it means the role of the teacher in primary school is quite different. Yeah. The role of the teacher in primary school is to try and teach the kids right from wrong, reality from online, possibilities from fantasies. And it becomes, and the, the, the teacher becomes more of a custodian 
of accuracy so that the kids are being exposed to this all the time, but the education system is in some way mediating them and some way guiding them in a certain yeah. way. Because mentoring them almost. Mentoring them and saying, look, you know, you, you're, you know, when we went to school, we didn't receive any other information from anywhere. We went to yeah. school was where we learned things. Whereas now, if you're an eight-year-old, you're learning things from everywhere. You're seeing True. all yep. sorts of, and, you know, some of some of its imagery, but lots of it's also ideas. Lots of it's also different news outlets, different political outlets. You know, all that stuff is happening much, much earlier. So what it seems to me is that the education system, in order to prepare the children to become adults, needs to involve itself in that world much, much earlier. That's the mm. first thing. And the second thing is also to realize that in the future, the vast majority of opportunities are going to come from a combination of your skill base and your attitude yeah. and your actual yeah. personal demeanor, your actual way you look at the world, the way you wake up in the morning, the way in which you deal with failure, the way in which you deal with success, the way in which you deal with people putting obstacles in your way, the way in which you deal with your own skill base becoming atrophied. You know, like, for example, years and years ago, you know, the encyclopedias. Remember those things? Every family yes. had an encyclopedia. Nobody has them anymore. They're gone. And even if you think of all the, <laughs> the mad information that we have in our heads, you can Google that most of the time. So what you're actually looking for is not this sort of reservoir of knowledge in people's heads because you can actually get that elsewhere, but it's how you deploy that knowledge. These, You know, this idea of meta skills, yeah. the sort of meta skills are the skills that allow you use other skills. So they're sort of human skills. They're sort of interactive. They're emotional intelligence all those sort of things. And they can be taught. They can be explained. They can be valued. And I, so I think our, our education system, rather than becoming harder, is going to have to become much, much softer and much more in the, again, to use that word, that meta skill idea, that what you're trying to train people is not to be specifically good at one thing, because that will they will learn through their passions in time. Yeah. It's actually to have the emotional intelligence to be able to deal with all the world. So, for example, there's no point being a fantastically brilliant scientist if you can't work in a team. Like, think about it, right? Sure. So teamwork, these sort of ideas. So brilliant people are made more brilliant by other people. That's always the way. So how do you teach people about teamwork? How do you teach people that actual collaboration rather than genius is what makes fantastic things? And how do you teach people how to share? And remember what we were talking about years ago? Remember when you, the fellas used to put their arms over, when you're doing your, your Ecker yeah, in school, yeah. right? And your man would put his arm away so you couldn't see. And the worst thing you could ever be was a copier in school. Yeah. And yeah. now when you Can't get go. into the real world, you're a collaborator. Yeah. You know, and it's the best but thing see, you can be. So it's an interesting point when you say about teachers, that there's also a problem there. So teachers have to be much more than just planning a, a, a lesson yeah. and just spewing it out in class. But... They also need to understand life outside of teaching. And it's interesting, if a mutual friend of ours has worked in the law for 30 years as a solicitor and has just gone back to be a teacher at the age of 50 plus, which I think is brilliant. So yeah, what is I brilliant. think he, he is going to be an even better teacher because of his life experience, yeah. not just in law, but out there in the commercial world. Yeah, dealing with the whole thing. No, I, I actually think so. I'm just trying to think that when you ask that question about teaching, could you imagine had I actually ended up being a primary <laughs> teacher? Could you imagine the madness in the class, the chaos, <laughs> the complete chaos? And you could also, could you imagine me with my level of patience dealing with a parent-teacher meeting? 
Yeah. That's what I've always thought. I wake up at night with a cold sweat thinking about had I been that teacher at a parent-teacher meeting. But but also I think, you know, I think we'll conclude here about teachers. It is a fascinating The education system has to change, but it's also very difficult to change big, big systems. Yeah. It's almost impossible to change from the inside because of inertia, trade unions. We always did it this way. Why should we have the responsibility? You know, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm going to give you five trends which are going to change education. The first one is online schooling, John. Online education is estimated to be worth 250 billion euros a year. And if there's one thing the pandemic showed is it can be done. People can switch over. Not everybody. It's not for everybody. One-to-one tuition is still amazingly effective, but it's going to happen. The second thing is nano-learning. Now, nano-learning is bite-sized learning. There was an amazing study by Microsoft recently which showed that on average, on average in the last 15 years, individuals of all ages have suffered a decline in our attention span of four seconds. Now, that might not seem much, but it's Mm -hmm. phenomenal. Because of screens, where our attention span is collapsing. So therefore, our ability to pay attention for an hour is almost unique to a tiny select amount of people. And therefore, like podcasts, short podcasts, TED Talks, all those things are coming in. And the second is like virtual learning, augmented reality technology, which can actually bring people into a different place. Like, you know, those VR headsets and suddenly you're in Versailles or you're in the First World War. Do you remember when we like, remember we used to go on school tours to see Oliver Plunkett's head? Remember that? (laughs) Yes. Do you remember we'd yeah. go all go on the bus with loads of packets of potatoes and two cans of lemonade sandwiches. and egg sandwiches, <laughs> and you'd go to some church in Drogheda to see some shrunken head, yeah. and that was that was our exposure to the world. That was our big day out, our big school trip. Now, can you imagine with VR sort of augmented reality headsets? You know, you can go to the moon. So the the the, the, yeah. the potential is huge to really expand people's horizons. And then, of course, you've got AI, artificial intelligence can come in and you can have tailored learning. And then finally, John, you can have this idea about passion projects, like genius hours, like to say to students, look, what are you really interested in? Right? What actually, you know, it's not on Tishel, Ginnaduk and Peg that you're into, right? It's something else. And allow kids to actually do all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, these big trends are going to change the world. And they're going to change education. And of course, this week, we're going to obsess about the leaving cert and the point system and all that. But what's actually happening underneath is that technology is coming after the education system the way it's coming after all of us. And what I would say, given our lifestyles, is there's nothing to fear. Just plan for it, prepare for it, and then embrace the future and everything will be okay. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. 